Good morning. My name is Valerie Leonard. I am the founder of Nonprofit Utopia. I want to say thank you so much for joining us. And I thank you so much for your patience. We were supposed to start a half hour ago and we had some technical difficulty, but nevertheless, we are here. I want to start off by asking you, you know, if you are with us, can you please share your name, where you're from, and any issues you may have heard about? And it doesn't necessarily have to be within your own organization. Any issues you may have heard about concerning toxic environments in your nonprofit? We're going to be talking about the 12 signs your nonprofit organization's culture is toxic. And not only are we going to point to the signs, but we're going to share with you some proven solutions as to um, some of the problems and what you can do about it. All right, you can try this at home. So without further ado, I am going to share my screen and then we'll get right into it. Um, just a moment. Alrighty, so again, we're going to talk about those 12 signs that your organization's culture is toxic and what you can do about it. We're not going to leave you hanging. And before I go into that, I just want to tell you a little bit about Nonprofit Utopia. We're the ideal community for emerging nonprofit leaders. We give our members a safe space where they can share issues, ask questions. We also have a number of free resources that they can take advantage of that they may not necessarily find in one place. All right, so if you were with us a couple weeks ago, you may recall that we talked about organizational culture, right? So when we speak about organizational culture, we're talking about the personality of an organization and there are no two organizations that are exactly alike. You know, they take on the persona of the leadership and not only do they take on the persona of the leadership but you know the customs the actions and it's a shared set of work workplace beliefs values attitudes standards purposes and behaviors and it's also a reflection of the written rules as well as those unwritten rules that everybody kind of knows but nobody talks about right and so in summary, it's the sum total of all of that, the way you do things, the way you think, the way you work together. And as the founder of Bamboo HR said, if those things sound important, it's because they really, really are. All right. So one of the first signs of a toxic environment and the way we're defining toxic environment is those environments that keep people for whatever reason from meeting the potential they keep the organization from meeting the potential of serving its clients in communities right making the maximum impact there may be systems in place and you'll be surprised nine times out of ten the problems really do rest with systems and not so much with people but we are you know creatures we're social creatures and we tend to look at the people as being the problem but a lot of our problems can be settled you know if we have better systems in place so one of the main things uh one of, that lets you know that your environment is toxic is when your leaders don't follow your bylaws or your constitution they tend to think that those are obsolete documents. They're no longer relevant. Um, the constitution and bylaws may uh, create some sort of um, added la layer of bureaucracy. However, when your leaders don't follow the organization's constitution or the bylaws, they're really setting the tone for the entire organization not to follow any rules that they set, right? And when people don't follow rules, you have a group of people who don't follow rules, 
what you end up with is chaos. And that makes it very, very difficult to understand, you know, what's going on, who's doing what. And it invariably causes conflict, right? So here's some suggestions, right? One of the first things you can do, and I know it sounds crazy, but many organizations don't do this. You know, you bring your constitution and bylaws to every meeting. You give every member a copy, give them a binder with, you know, documents that every board member should have. And you make sure too, when you bring on new members, you include the constitution and bylaws in the orientation. So if there are any questions, if there is a potential for people to feel like they don't fit within the organization, you know, in terms of the structure and the rules, you know, you can find that out early on. Bring the constitution and bylaws to every meeting, not that you're gonna be reading them, but invariably when you're taking a vote, you're um, taking on a new project, there could be questions, right, about procedure, right? that can be settled very, very quickly. All you got to do is, you know, look at the Constitution and bylaws and see what it says. All right. And then you should also review those once a year to make sure they're still relevant, you know, because we're living in an environment where the only thing that's constant is change. And then obviously, since it's a living document, you want to revise it as necessary. All right, another indicator that your organization has a toxic environment is the leader's actions aren't in sync with the stated core values. Um, I'm sure we've all seen um, stated core values for our organizations. You know, and this doesn't happen in every organization, but it happens often enough where the leaders aren't walking the walk. Our core values are, are written and they say one thing but the way our leaders behave says another. And if you're ever in doubt as to what the true core values of an organization, remember there's a saying, you know, don't watch what people say, right? Watch what they do, all right? So in those cases, you want to uh, pay attention to what the true core values are and see if they really fit with yours. And in many cases, some of that uneasiness that we feel is because our core values are different. You know, the things that are important to us, the way we approach things, um, the filter that we're looking at all of our decisions and the way we live life could be in some cases, I know I've been in some environments where my core beliefs and values were diametrically or totally opposite of the environment that I was working in and I chose to move to, you know, another environment. And this example here, you know, preachers say, do as I say, not as I do, but if a physician had the same disease upon him that I have, and he should bid me to do one thing and he do quite another, should I believe him? And that's from John Selden. And that's not something that happens in our church. You know, we like to say, walk the walk and talk the talk, but that is not just for churches. That is for every group, you know, that goes for our families, that goes for our nonprofits, that goes for our block clubs, etc. So the basic common sense remedy for this is to set the example, right? You want to lead by example. If you want a culture that's transparent, then you need to be, as the leader, you need to be transparent. You need to be open and honest about any questions that come to you. If you want people to be more communicative, then you have to be more open to communication. If you want to have an environment where there's teamwork, then you have to get out of your comfort zone. If you're not used to working as a team, then you have to learn to be a better team player and demonstrate that. And then once people see that the leader is actually you know, walk in the walk, then they will naturally fall in line. A third symptom of a toxic environment, and let's just hope that your organization doesn't have all 12 of these, it's usually one or two of these things, 
But if you have 12 of these, then you have some serious work to do. It's not impossible, but you know, it's just a lot of work to do and people really need to be committed, right? This is a very common one, um, unclear roles and responsibilities and lines of authority. This is especially true in organizations that are just starting out, right? Where people tend to just get in where they fit in. You don't have any written job descriptions or any of that stuff um, because at first it doesn't seem necessary, but I always work with my clients and tell them, even if you're just starting, you need to think about roles and responsibilities of the board versus staff and then Think of the responsibilities and roles for each of your board members. Come up with job descriptions for the board members as well as the staff that you may not have yet, but you want to make sure that those lines are clear. You want to um, include um, who reports to whom, right? And another thing that can make the roles unclear is not having... Um, clear descriptions in your job descriptions. You might talk about what the person does, but you know sometimes you might leave out who they interact with or who they report to or who reports to them. And as human nature is, we always try to work within those gray areas. And the people who are really good at working through those gray areas usually manage to take on more um, power than what's due them, and that can cause a conflict. All right, so here is a four-step process in clarifying roles and responsibilities, and this is um, the RACI process, right? You want to determine what needs to get done. You want to identify the gaps in responsibilities, and the way you do that is literally list out, you know, list out what work needs to be done, who is doing what, you know, assign people, this, that, and the other. Look at what they're actually doing. And nine times out of 10, there's going to be somebody in the group that's doing more than he or she should be doing according to their responsibilities. And then there's going to be somebody who's not doing as much as they could be doing. So you, you identify those gaps, those people who are doing things that are not in alignment with what they should be doing, you give them to the person who should be doing it. And that way you have equity in um, the workload and then people are doing things that are more, uh, more in line with what they're supposed to do. You reduce conflict that way, you also increase accountability and after you identify those gaps and responsibilities, you want to develop a RACI chart. So you want to list out, you know, the different team members, and then you um, list out the tasks, and you indicate, right, you know, who's responsible for what task, who, and the re responsible person is the person who's actually doing it. You want to look at who's accountable to make sure it's done. And usually that's the person's supervisor or group leader, right? And then you want to look at, you know, who needs to be consulted along the way? Who needs to provide input into the decision, into the process? And then you look at who needs to be informed, but they don't necessarily need to be involved in the day-to-day. -day. And then once you do that chart, you get feedback from the team members. And if you are a member of the Nonprofit Utopia community, I will be sharing resources where you can see live examples of that RACI chart in action. All right. And here is, you know, a responsibility gap analysis. Remember, I was telling you there are some instances where you know, once you look at what actually is being done and who is doing what, you see here, this is the ideal workload based on the team member's job description, but this is what he's currently doing. And you can see there's a gap between what he's currently doing and what he should be doing ideally, and that's this area. 
the pink is the tasks that don't align with the job description. And then, um, so those things that align with the job description and they're in the team member's ideal workload, you shift to him or her and make sure that they're pulling their weight. Anything that person is doing that's outside of their scope of responsibility, you shift that to someone else who, whose uh, responsibilities are more in line with those tasks. All right, so as I indicated before, Racy is responsible, A um, is accountable, C is consulted, I is informed. And again, if you're a member of the Nonprofit Utopia community, you will get some examples of RACI in action. All right. And here is a RACI chart. But again, you know, we do have some examples that are um, applied to real work situations that will be posted later on today. But the way this works, again, you have task one, two, and three, and then you look at the team members going across the rows. And then for task one, team member one is consulted, you know, he gives input. Team number two is responsible, so team number two is doing this task number one. Team number three is accountable, so team number three is probably somebody's supervisor, right? Um, or manager of a certain project. And then team member four just needs to be informed. And you go down the rows, right? And you assign you know, different levels of whether or not they're responsible, accountable, consulted, or informed. And then once you get that chart done, you get feedback. And you can get that feedback through one-on-one -on -one meetings, through team meetings and through surveys. And then make sure that once you get that feedback that you're actually listening and you're making adjustments because you don't want to contribute to the to toxic environment, right? You're trying to right the ship. All right, so along the lines of unclear authority, right? Unclear lines of communication can really, really be a problem when people don't understand the task, you know, you as the supervisor might think that you're communicating what needs to be done, right? And then people on the team or your subordinates may not necessarily have the same vision as you. And when that happens, there's clearly, you know, some miscommunication, right? Or there just may be structures that are not in place. You know, your organization literally may not have these formalized ways of communicating or ways of you know, getting the word out and that can cause confusion, right? You know, that will result in this interpersonal um, conflict. So some examples are you really wanna have policies that set basic standards of communication within the organization and that doesn't matter it doesn't make a difference if you have no employees and it's just all board members or if you have a large institution you need to start from the beginning make sure that there are set standards of communication within the organization as well as you know how you're going to communicate uh, with the public you need to maintain consistent channels of communication so people kind of get in get used to hearing certain messages in from certain um, people or they're used to getting their news through say a text message or an email telephone or face-to-face -face. but whatever your mode of communication is it needs to be consistent based on you know what um what the reason for the communication is. Obviously, personnel matters need to be communicated in one way if it's a confidential matter versus something that needs to be communicated by memo to the whole group. You want to create safe spaces, right? So people should feel comfortable that once they voice their opinions, that they won't be 
chastised or penalized or singled out you know for sharing their opinions but at the same time when we share our opinions opinions we need to be mindful right of how we communicate our opinions we need to focus on the issues and not personalities we need to maintain transparency and when we talk about transparency in our communication you know for example we might want to look at how decisions are made and communicate the how and not just the what um, communicate who was involved give people the opportunity to participate um, you want to break down silos so that might mean working with different departments working with groups of people who might not normally communicate um, and but make sure these people who are doing different types of work are in on the ground floor of this project or even with your organization if you're just starting an organization you want to get into the habit very early on not to create silos but create teams and then you want to make sure too um, those common documents that everyone needs, you want to make sure that they're accessible by everyone so that um, you can continue to model that same type of communication, um, have similar standards for the way you write memos, where you send emails, and then when there are documents to be stored, you know, they're in a common area. And then also too, especially in this environment when people are working, you know, away from the office, you want to make sure that you go the extra mile to keep people engaged who are not in the office. And you who are working remotely, you need to go the extra mile to make sure that you're taking part in the activities of the office so um, people don't forget you around. Another sign that your organization has a toxic culture is conflicts go unresolved, right? Some of the largest conflicts, they start off as minor things, but you know, when you are in a situation where people consistently, you know, explain that there's there's something wrong with the process. <clears throat> or they may have a conflict with someone else and they report it to you as the supervisor, you as a, um, the executive director, you as a leader in the organization and you choose to um, not address it. And, or if you feel like you have addressed it, you may not have addressed it to the satisfaction of everyone involved. And when people feel like they're not heard even though one party thinks that it's resolved and the other person doesn't think it's been resolved, then you create a situation where the environment or uh, the toxicity in that environment can just fester. So believe it or not, this care uh, remedy, I got this from First T. This is, that's a national association or national organization for young golfers. Um, they use the care method. Obviously, the first thing you do is communicate when you have a dispute or a disagreement. And usually the disagreements we have, in many instances, they can be prevented or remedied through a process. So you want to make sure that everybody who is involved in the dispute is heard. You know, you don't want to just have a session where people just air out their gripes and you don't um, have any follow-up to resolve the issue. Uh, I think one of the biggest problems we have is people open up wounds, but they don't figure out, okay, now that we got this out, what do we do with it? So you need to be an active listener. Understand, you know, put yourself in the other person's shoes, even though I, I know the natural tendency, if you're anything like me, the natural tendency is to, quote, unquote, know you're right. And that other person on the other side knows he or she is right too. But you know, try a little empathy and try to look at the problem from his or her perspective. Um, let him or her speak, you know, without interrupting. And then, you know, ask questions. You know, if, if you're in the 
if you're in the position where you need to mediate this, right? Um, make sure each side is heard. Um, try to be objective and try to really make sure that each side understands what the other side is saying, so to speak, what's driving them, understand why they respond as, as they do. And then you want to, at that point, look at some of the options. And quite frankly, in most cases, uh, everybody is not going to walk away from this feeling um, that they won everything that they want. But you don't want to create a situation where one person has obviously won and the other person has obviously lost. And the person that went won got his way, right? And the person that lost feels like, you know, there's you know no point in ever trying to bring a problem to you know leadership because nothing will get done. You want to create situations where there's some compromise, where there's a win-win where both people can save uh, face, so to speak, where you can, uh, in some cases, it, it may end up you agree not to disagree, but you focus on issues and ways that you can work together and not whether or not you like one another. You're focusing on the common good, what's good for the organization rather than what's good for the individual and winning uh, a personal victory, right? And then another sign is groupthink, a sign that your organization is toxic. Um, I don't know. I think most of us probably operate in environments like this, where the person in power uh, may have a suggestion, right? And then uh, people around him or her, you know, they agree outwardly. And then, you know, after the meeting, you know, they go their separate ways and they grumble on the, their breath, right? So if, as you can see from this cartoon, you know, this is typical. Everyone in your fa in favor, raise your hand. This is the leader. Everybody raises their hand, but, you know, they're thinking, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to do what I have to do to go along, right? And this can be very uh, dangerous in some situations, especially when um, the situation may involve, you know, someone in the group who has a grievance, you know, they're genuinely hurt by some policy or by some individual, and usually the individual is in power, and people don't want to rock the boat. You know, they can see that an individual is being mistreated, but they just go along because one, they, you know, they don't want to lose their job, or if it's a volunteer organization, they don't want to lose their standing, you know, and they see what happened to this other person who may have a legitimate concern, and this person dared to raise a legitimate concern but you know they looked the other way because they didn't want to get treated that same way right but some of the remedies to this group think is you know make sure that you know the people in your group you know are diverse you know in some cases even though people are all from the same neighborhood or all black you know or all white you still need a diversity of thought a diversity of skill sets so that you know you have people who will push one another you know challenge one another's thinking right you want to make sure that you're inclusive you know one of my biggest pet peeves is you know especially um being a, a black woman um, we talk about, and when I say we, I'm talking about Black people, we talk about um, demanding diversity, equity, and inclusion, right, from these large institutions. But then when it comes to our own little neighborhood organizations, even though we're all Black or we could be all male or we could be all female, right, there are certain people that we exclude. You know, we surround ourselves with people who think like us, people who are in our clique, rather than including people 
from various cross sections of the community, various cross sections of the organization, of the school, right? And you need to let people know that it's okay to be who they are. You know, they don't necessarily have to lose the essence of who they are to be heard and to be respected. And you need to also, you know, if you're in a larger organization, you know, train your managers and other leaders, right? Train them to go through a decision-making process. You know, there are various decision-making processes. You know, one being, you know, the most common is a brainstorm where you're soliciting ideas from the whole group and making sure that that whole group is reflective of stakeholders and not just leaders. You know, everybody who's gonna be impacted by the decision needs to be part of the solution. You also need to have a plan before you get into conflict of how you're going to address conflicts, right? And how you're gonna build teams. And then you want to also make sure too that these policies you know that there are policies that are put in place that kind of standardize practices and then you want to review those and update them as needed another symptom of a toxic environment is you know stakeholder concerns are not addressed in a timely fashion you know, People, you know, employees feel like if they bring a concern to management, that, you know, if management doesn't respond immediately, they feel that they're not being heard. And when employees feel like they're not being heard, then they become less productive and even worse, they can leave, right? Then you get this high turnover, which is very, very um, expensive. Other stakeholders that you really want to make sure that they're heard, you know, board members, you know, um, they're the ones who are setting the strategic direction. If board members who usually have a heck of a lot of, to give, but very little time, if people are taking the time to work with your organization, you need to make sure that if they have a concern that your organization responds. Your clients, but for the grace of God and your clients, where would your organization be? You get funding to serve them. If they have concerns, right, you have to look at those concerns and address those concerns in a timely manner, right? Otherwise, they can walk away from, you know, your organization. They can be served by somebody else. And if enough of those clients walk away, guess what? You lose funding. So a remedy for for that is, you know, you want to make sure that you have open feedback loops. Um, so you want to develop formal channels for feedback. That could be positive feedback, complaints, and suggestions, right? And then you want to document the process, right? So you actually have to create policies, right? As well as these channels and mechanisms. So you document the process, including ways of assessing the issue, investigating the facts, give it deadlines, you want to identify alternatives and show that you have considered different alternatives, um, the solution that you settled on and why, who you spoke with, how the issue was actually resolved, right? Usually we go through every step except for the resolution and then people walk away feeling even more angry than they were when they address, you know, when they raise what is usually a very minor issue. All right. And then after you go through that, you want to make sure there's a place in your process where you're going back to the person who originated the complaint or shared the concern and share with them, you know, what the result was and, and then why. They may or may not be happy with the decision, but if you can show that the process was fair, you can show that the process was documented, you can show that you tried to get uh, as much information as possible, people will walk away feeling at least a respect for the process and not feeling like, you know, they were violated or shut down 
insular thinking and when we talk about insular thinking that's very very similar to groupthink groupthink um, revolves around you know the group taking action that they're rubber stamping things that the leader of the group you know usually this leader is a forceful person and everybody feels like they have to please that person or they're afraid to cross that person so that brings about groupthink, where people are doing things that are not necessarily um, always, quote unquote, the right thing to do, but they're the politically expedient thing to do. Um, insular thinking, on the other hand, again, is very, very similar. But in this case, the people sitting around the table, they actually do think alike, right? They're very similar in their thinking and you know people might even say their thinking is so similar that you know they're they're inbred right um they're very close-minded they don't receive outsiders very well they don't receive outside suggestions very well and you know when the organization is first starting you know this is not necessarily harmful because nine times out of ten if you've got a homogeneous group, you know, they're going to be the worker bees and they're going to work, work, work and make sure that things um, work out for the organization. But as the organization grows and you attract employees, you attract outsiders, you attract funding, um, then that insular thinking can become problematic, right? Because you won't be receptive to new ideas and you will probably uh, keep yourself from growing as fast as you could you're going to hit a plateau because you can only go as far as the leadership and if the leadership is all thinking alike they're typically not going to change right they're not going to be receptive to what funders may say they're not going to be receptive to what's going on in the community and delivering new programs and services all right and some of the remedies for um, insular thinking is you know making sure that you create space to take take on new information right there needs to be a leader within that group who is committed and the group needs to be receptive to bringing on some new information you might want to do some new training we have people from outside who are actually um, doing the training. You might want to have um, guests from your clients come in and share some of their perspectives. You might, you know, another cure for insular thinking really is diversity. You know, if, if everybody on your board or everybody on your staff thinks alike, you need to make a conscious effort right of bringing on people who think differently and don't be alarmed that it's probably going to cause a little conflict you know because um new versus old always um causes some sort of pushback but you really do need to open up avenues for new people and new ideas Another symptom of a toxic environment is lack of transparency. Um, people might know what decisions are made, but they don't know who made the decision, why the decision was made, or who made the decision, or what, what proof um, management or leadership had that the decision that was made was actually the best. And when people don't understand why certain actions were taken or why certain decisions were made, then they become jaded and distrusting. All right. So some of the remedies for lack of transparency, you want to maintain regulatory compliance. That means filing all of your, um, your uh, 990s and then making those 990s public on your website so people understand your finances making sure that um, you share financial information with people 
you know, on your board, making sure that those financials are prepared in a way where people can understand where the money comes from, where it goes, um, audited financials, um, budget versus actual, uh, making sure that when decisions are made, you know, if it's not the financial information, um, if it's something, you know, something may have happened in the organization that may approach crisis level, you know, make sure you share as much information as possible in an objective way, as much as you can uh, without violating confidentiality. And then you want to also make sure that you're mindful not to um, hurt people more than they already are hurt. When it comes to just day-to-day management, you want to make sure, you know, regardless of what level the employee is, he needs to, he or she needs to understand the organization's overall mission, vision, goals, the strategic plan, and how they fit in. Um, they need to understand the company's performance, the organization's performance. They need to understand when decisions are made, how they're made, the context within which they're made. Um, They need to understand your organization's strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And you want to be able to answer questions, you know, directly and honestly. And again, you as a leader, you need to model the behavior that you want to see in others. And similar to lack of transparency is lack of accountability. Um, meaning that there needs to be consequences for any negative action or any um, performance um, goals that are not met, right? Um, And people all need to be held to the same standards. So when it comes to remedies, when we look at processes, we need to have some sort of performance management system in place where you're looking at the strategies of the organizations and their goals and make sure that every process is aligned with those strategies and you have benchmarks and you know that let you know whether or not you hit those marks and you're looking at your outcomes you're looking at performance indicators and then as we talked about before um, the racing method also comes well could come into play it doesn't have to but if if you choose to um, use the racy method to make sure that people's workload is in alignment with what their stated responsibilities you can do that and then when it comes to people again lead by example and hold yourself accountable to the same rules and sanctions that you would others Um, You want to set team goals and metrics. You want to provide continuous feedback, and it needs to be constructive, right? So people can actually hear you and work on ways they can improve, improve relationships, improve their performance. And then you want to make accountability a habit, right, at all levels, from the uttermost, right, to the lowest ranking person in the community in the organization and then you want to hold one another accountable right and you want to do it with love right you don't want to cast blame another sign of a toxic environment is disparate treatment and or disparate impact So disparate treatment, that's usually a term that refers to treating people differently based on their race or gender or whatever, you know, a protected class of people. You know, there's an intentionality around the way you treat protected classes, you know, people who are older. A disparate impact means, you know, you're going to have probably the same result, but you didn't intend to do that, right? You know, you unintentionally did something that would hurt a group of people 
more, you know, a protected group of people more than um, people who are not in that protected class. All right. So again, disparate treatment, you have direct discrimination, unequal treatment, it's intentional, your actions are prejudiced, and you have different standards for different people based on their race or gender, um, disparate impact. Again, you have the same result, right? But it's unintentional. Your actions could be actually neutral, but the impact it has on others could be just as bad as if you were prejudiced. You got the same standards, right? But these standards have different consequences, you know, because it may impact one group more, more negatively than another. All right, so a remedy for disparate impact as well as disparate treatment, you know, you want to value diversity in your workplace, right? Make sure that you got people who have different backgrounds, you know, uh, racially, as far as age is concerned, et cetera. You wanna have open channels of communication. You want to have clear personnel policies that um, point out um, how you're going to deal with discrimination, whether it's through um, disparate impact or disparate treatment. And this is really a case where you want to have an attorney involved, you know, make sure that they're looking at all of your policies and procedures, you know, not just your employee handbook, but, you know, um, every policy and procedure, because there could be some things that we do, you know, even your job descriptions that can be prejudicial and we do it unwittingly. And you want to educate your managers, let them know about you know the different hr rules and make sure that they understand the consequences of some of the laws and then again you want to create an environment where you value diversity equity and inclusion and you want to actually walk the walk and not just talking all right so here are nine steps to creating a climate of diversity equity and inclusion you want to start off by compiling the data and based on what the data say you want to identify what the issues are and the needs you want to review your policies and practices and see if by any chance there could be um, some inequity that you didn't even think about it right then you want to identify your business objectives and make sure that they're in alignment with your strategic objectives. You want to get buy-in and support from stakeholders. So that's everybody who is impacted by this DEI initiative. And then you want to implement the initiative and then you want to communicate the initiatives and then you want to see how it's working, right? And look at the outcomes and then you rinse and <laughs> repeat. You know, you review the data and make adjustments and you go through that whole process again. And finally, favoritism, you know, favoritism, you know, just treating people better because, you know, they might be a relative, you might be in a relationship with that person, you might just click better with this person, they might be a relative, right, could be a spouse, could be somebody you have a business relationship with. Um, we need to be mindful about how we treat others. So obviously, you know, you want to draft a code of conduct that addresses favoritism, but the best remedy for favoritism is to apply the rules equally regardless of who the people are in your relationship to them. You want to let managers know when their actions seem to show favoritism. If you're an employee, you want to gently um, approach your superiors and let them know what you're feeling. And again, you need to, as an, as an employer, create an environment where that feedback um, 
is not going to result in some sort of retaliation. And then you want to create, you know, metrics, a performance management system where you're focusing um, on metrics and make sure too, when you develop those metrics, that they're not inadvertently um, prejudicial. And then you want to discourage friendship or fraternizing between, you know, employees and management. And then you want to, again, make sure that you, you know, enforce all rules equally across the board. And again, you know, once you've gone through all these steps and improve your culture, you want to plan, do, check, and act. So you want to observe, evaluate, analyze, strategize, act, rinse, and repeat. All right. So this ends my presentation. If you have any questions, um, please feel free to share. Oh, wow. <laughs> LinkedIn user, I've experienced top-down toxicity. All involved were toxic. I, I know that feeling. I've, I've been involved in situations like that as well. And, you know, and when the situation got to a point where I felt like people weren't listening, I just had to leave. People not understanding their roles. Yeah, I, I totally get that, Frederick. So I, it seems to me that you would agree that a lot of confusion comes about because people just don't understand what their roles are. It's not necessarily because people are evil people and they're not always, quote unquote, just difficult people. We can uh, sometimes create conflict by not having clear lines, you know, in our systems. And then people are left to fend for themselves and, and fight for authority and power. And good morning, LinkedIn user. I'm not quite sure who you are. And thank you, Alitra. I, I really appreciate the feedback. And um, before we go, if there are any questions that you might have, you want to share your experiences, any comments you might have, feel free to do so. Um, if not, then I will see you tomorrow. We're going to be talking about what should go in your employee handbook so that you can put some of these policies in the place and make sure you create win-win situations. So. Again, thank you for joining us, and I will see you tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye.